0: Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me please to Luke uh, 5, Luke chapter 5. As Josh said, we're kicking off this new year uh, with a new series looking at discipleship, which we have called Becoming. So this series is called Becoming. And there's really two questions that I want to ask you as we approach this series, but more this year. And those two questions are, who are you becoming and how are you becoming? Who are you becoming and how are you becoming? Because those two things always go hand in hand. The vision of the person that we want to become and the lifestyle we choose to get us there. And so we're going to be reading from the famous passage when it comes to discipleship. This is Peter's call and i just going to bring it up. So Luke 5, reading from verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Simon answered, Master, we've been working hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they were full and began to sink." When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. And so, here's a question as we start off. If someone comes up to you and says, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, what does that conjure up for you? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean? Does it mean something about you know, the way they act? Does it mean something about having a fish in the back of their car? Maybe does it mean like, something about their like, political stance? Like, What does it mean? Because that word means all sorts of things to us today. But in the Bible, it really only meant one thing. The Bible has one definition for that. In fact, it doesn't use the term Christian very often. The term that it uses for Jesus' people was this one thing. Disciple. 268 times in the New Testament is the word disciple used. There's only one term that's used for the Jesus people more than disciple, and that is... Anyone? Brother and sister. Yes, yes, the language of the church. So we're here with brothers and sisters. But other than that, the term that gets used most for the people who follow Jesus was disciple. And all of those 268 times, only twice, is there a verb attached to it. So that means that being a disciple was not fundamentally something that you did, it was fundamentally something that you became. It was a statement of your identity. It was how you became known. It became the most fundamental and influential thing about you. You were a follower of Jesus. And a disciple meant that you positioned your life in such a way that you tried to learn to be exactly like Jesus, the term that's maybe closely associated with it in english today is the term apprentice you apprentice yourself to jesus but it's interestingly but it's interesting because today we sort of have developed a bit of a three stage step to salvation right tell me if you recognize this number 1 you become a convert and that's where you say that Jesus is Lord. So you are converted or saved, is the language we used. Number two, you mature, and that's important, into being discipled, usually through a course. So through some sort of course and that's often due with lifestyle choices and then number three if you mature even further you became a disciple and so we have these like three stages of maturity salvation disciple discipler put your hands up if you like recognize those right fine great the problem is the bible just doesn't have that It just does not exist in the bible And actually, that's important because the Bible was one thing. You became a disciple. You followed Jesus. But it's interestingly because this actually just makes its way into our theology. You can always tell common theology by the songs that we sing, right? And even today, great songs that we sung, but there's so much of them is about belief. Right? I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Father and the Son. I believe. It's so much about intellectual assent. And that's great. I am here to tell you, you should believe in Jesus. You should believe in the Father and the Son. That's great. But the battleground is not what you believe. It's how you act based on that belief. When's the last time you heard a song about following Jesus? And so, this series is about following Jesus. It's about how we follow Jesus. Because, and I don't know if you've noticed it, I definitely have, we don't become like Jesus by accident. Right? I don't wake up in the morning feeling really like Jesus. It requires a load of effort to become like Jesus. And actually, interestingly, that has become a slightly dirty word in our Christian circles, because we have come down through the Reformation, and we love the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, and yes and amen, we absolutely are. But the problem with that is that anything to do with effort becomes slightly like this works mentality, and we're so against works that we want to push it out. But the problem is, now, if you've noticed, becoming like Jesus requires a ton of effort. So much effort, but because we have come down from the Reformation, we so often, we we don't like that term because we think that it can make us like all works and not grace. Well, Dallas Willard puts it really well when he says the opposite of grace isn't works, but earning. And absolutely, we do not earn our salvation, but we work it out through fear and trembling. Right? How do we become like Jesus? Because the truth is that we can sit in churches for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And when you scratch away the surface, there's a danger that we don't actually handle things any differently. We don't approach our money, or our sexuality, or our addiction, or our anger, or our power, or our anxiety, or our success, or our failure any different to when we started. Because in the same way, you don't become a great doctor by watching Grey's Anatomy. You don't become a great Christian by going to a great church. It's important, and actually I would say that it's essential. It's so good that you're here in a great church, and this will become, this church, these people, the way that we gather, become an essential part of our spiritual formation. But it has to go further than that. And so we are kicking off 2022 by looking again at how we refocus our lives and our intentionality around becoming disciples in this series called becoming. And if you take a look at the screen we're going to frame it around this which I think is is from John Mark Comer and that's a church which I feel is pressing into this discipleship so well. And he and the church use this really helpful four pillars of spiritual formation, which he says the Bible teaches moves us towards Christ-likeness. And basically, we're going to work our way around the diamond. So it's the diamond of Christ-likeness, and the four pillars are the Holy Spirit, and that's God's effort in our lives, the spiritual disciplines, which is self-effort, community, the people you see around you, and that's others' effort, And then what he describes as the hard knocks of life. And that's the unique place that the Bible teaches of suffering. that The way that suffering in our lives creates something godly inside of us. And so we're going to be working our way around the diamond. Next week, spiritual disciplines. The next one, community. One after that, the hard knocks of life. And then finally, on week five, we are going to be... uh, Uh, releasing, showing you a brand new discipleship resource that we think is going to really help us here at Emmaus to become more intentional in our discipleship with one another. So I'm really excited for this series. But this first week, we're touching on God's effort. God's effort. And now, God's effort is that there has to be a place within our spirituality that the Holy Spirit just sometimes does things miraculously, right? Right? God has permission and he does do that. Sometimes he just comes in, you're praying for someone. We believe in the power of the Spirit here and we believe that we pray for people and then just there's instantaneous change. It does happen. But, but that isn't the way that God usually works. When it comes to spiritual formation, that isn't the way that he usually works. Why? Well, because I think that the problem with an instantaneous change is it doesn't often come with an instantaneous change of lifestyle. And so God even talks about the fact that, you know, you come in and get someone clean, and then a week later, all the problems come back. Sometimes they get even worse. And so oftentimes, the way that God seems to work in terms of spiritual formation is through process through habits, through disciplines, through process and through time. And the Holy Spirit's role in all of that is that he's teaching us how to live 24-7 in the presence of God. God's effort is about constantly drawing us to himself. Come and follow me. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk to your heart slightly more than your hands. Next week, and as we go through, we'll talk into the hands a little bit more. But today, I want to speak to your heart. Because Jesus was actually really honest and open about the cost of discipleship. We're good at talking about the benefits of the gospel, but we're not as good at talking about the requirements of the gospel. But Jesus actually said that being a disciple wasn't easy. He said it wasn't for the half-hearted. He was actually clear that there was only one doorway to discipleship, and that was to forsake all others and follow him. And he even made lists, right? And these were the sorts of things he put on his lists. Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, fathers. Even your very own life. Even your very own life. To follow Jesus. And in Luke 14, he tells these two parables. We're not going to read them today, but I want to encourage you to go away and read them. Because I sat down, and I could be wrong. I can't remember every sermon I've ever heard. But in 34 years, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Luke 14. But it's the parables of... First of all, Jesus talks about a man who decides to make a tower on his property, but he doesn't count the cost and he gets halfway through and then can't build any more. And then he talks about a king who goes to war against an army that's twice as big as his, and he loses. People remember that bit, like vague memories? Anyone heard any sermons on Luke 14? No. See, we don't talk about it very often, right? But Jesus says, and at the end he says, Count the cost. This is not a journey to start half-hearted. This is a journey that requires everything. If you are going to embark on being a disciple, make sure you understand what it's going to cost you and don't start unless you're willing to go the whole way. And not everyone has to forsake all others. Right, we read the list, but I think Jesus wants us to be great mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters. We don't have to, we won't all be called to forsake everyone, but we all have to be willing to. There is one doorway to discipleship putting Jesus above everything. But it is nothing compared to what you will receive. I think the best, most simplistic metaphor I've ever heard for the gospel is it's like bringing a pebble to God and getting a diamond back. But, and here's the kicker, it's your very favorite pebble, right? You really, really love that pebble. But if you give that to God, what you receive is infinitely, infinitely better. And that's why Jesus says, leave, just like Peter, leave everything and follow me. And I think, if I'm honest, and I see this in my own life, what we'd love to do is we'd love to kind of hold on to stuff in the world with one hand and kind of lay hold of the life that God has in the other and hedge our bets, right? You kind of want a little bit of both. But it seems to me when I read it, And when I encounter the scriptures, that what Jesus says is, there's always death before there's life. There's always letting go before there's receiving. There's always giving up before getting. He doesn't seem to give us the permission to hold on to both. It's as we let go, as we walk away from the net, that he gives us this life and life to the full that he's promised for us. Um, We... Uh, me and my wife Hannah We've just had a new little baby, Noah He's seven weeks old on Tuesday And um, so we went away to my parents for Christmas They live in Cheddar in Somerset And on the 29th of December we're travelling home And um, I don't know if you're a parent, you would know this But the smallest people come with the most stuff Right? Like the most kit like, And so we've got one car with the four of us in And um, it was big family, you know, just brothers everywhere, presents galore, it's amazing. And so I'm like packing the car, trying to get home. And it is so full. Like, years and years of Tetris really prepared me for this moment, right? Where I'm like dismantling the pram and getting it all in. And so Hannah's job is to take care of the kids. My job is to pack the car. And I like smashed it, right? Like it was just all in, it was perfect. No one could move, but there wasn't a sock or a piece of Duplo or a Terry's chocolate orange left behind. Everything made into the car. We're driving home, um, you know, four-week, literally four-week-old baby. It's like a four-hour journey. And as we get in there, I realised have forgotten one thing. The keys to our front door. And um, this was a moment where I just gave Hannah the chance to practise Christ-likeness, right? Four... <laughs> Week old baby traveling for four hours and we get home and uh, I've forgotten the keys and literally we get to the outside of the door. Sam luckily lives with us. He was in town. I had to call him away from Top Golf that he was playing. So we like sat after four hours outside the house for like 45 minutes while I'm trying to break in to a house. I'm not able to do it. But here's the thing. The more stuff you feel like you need to bring, the easier it is to forget the really important stuff. Right. If I didn't have all that junk, I definitely. If I had one suitcase and a keys, I wouldn't have forgot my keys. But I, my head was so full of everything I was trying to get in. I left the keys. I can picture them, right next to the telephone on the left as you walk into the front door. But I forgot them because I was trying to get so much other stuff in there. And so we see Peter. And we see this call that Peter has to follow Jesus. And I think when Peter arrived at work that day, I wonder if his prayer was, I want a good day at work. Like I just want to catch some fish. You know, as he's going about, he's getting his boat ready, he's getting his net laid out. You know, he's just sort of praying, I want a good catch. And interestingly, Jesus answered that prayer, right? And when I read this story... It strikes me as funny that Jesus answers that prayer. He feels, he feels this net so full that it requires two boats to bring it to shore. And then he asks him to leave it all. He doesn't get to do anything with that catch. And I wonder if for Peter there was a struggle. I don't know how much income a full net or two boats of fish would have been to Peter. A day, a week, a month, six months. I wonder if Peter's thinking that's enough to buy another net. Maybe that's enough to buy another boat. Maybe that's enough to hire a few extra hands. Maybe a few right decisions, a couple of years, I could be upsizing. I could have a small fleet of boats. If I keep playing my cards right, maybe in a few years I'll find a wife, we'll settle down. Maybe we'll get a house with Lake Genserat views. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't allow many of that. He says, No, leave it all and follow me. Peter doesn't even say, Hey, are you doing the circuit? Just wait, I'll catch you up. Let me just sell this. Let me just sell this fish. There's a market today, I'll sell as much as I can. I'll catch you up. I've heard you're quite slow. Just speak to everyone. No, leave it. Because, and John Mark Homer makes this point, and it's so good. Our strongest desire isn't necessarily our deepest desire. And what Jesus does is he reaches down into the core of us, beyond even what our strongest desire is, and he taps into our deepest desire. And for each of us, that is to become like him. To live like Christ in the world. Leave it, Peter. It doesn't matter. Follow me. And I will make you something so much more. But just for Peter, and just for us, it's hard work. There's a cost. What you get is a diamond, what you give up is a pebble, but there is a cost. And as we approach this year and this series, what is it that you might be asking, what is it that God might be asking you to leave behind? You know, I wonder if Peter would would have wanted to drag his net with him. He's dragging it through the mud and Jesus is getting slowly and slowly further away because you don't get to hold on to both. You don't get to bring the net and at the same time follow Jesus. You can't lay hold of what God has with hands that are already full of other stuff. What might Jesus be asking you to lay down? Dallas Willard puts it like this, and this is like hard hitting, so I apologize. The non-disciple, whether inside or outside the church, has something more important to do than become like Jesus Christ. He has bought a piece of ground, perhaps, or even five yoke of oxen, or has taken a new wife. Such lame excuses only reveal that something on that dreary list of reputation, wealth, power, sensual indulgence, or mere distraction, still retains his ultimate allegiance. The non-disciple has something more important to do than become like Jesus Christ. And I'd like to suggest that none of us want to be the non-disciple And so I'm not trying to say that we should go back to trying to earn our salvation, not at all, not at all. Your salvation has been done by the redeeming and atoning work of Jesus Christ and it is sealed for all of eternity. But there is something promised to us now. The freedom of the kingdom of heaven is available to us here and now. But the life of Jesus always goes hand in hand with the lifestyle of Jesus. We are set free from the tyranny of anger when we choose to love our enemies, right? We don't get to be set free from anger and still hate our enemies. The life of Jesus, the freedom of Jesus goes hand in hand with the lifestyle of Jesus, And in my pastoral experience, sometimes discipleship can be confusing when it's framed in terms of following Jesus, because he isn't here, right? Like, he's not here. We don't get to follow him out and into the world and into woking. But really, it can be summed up a little bit to obedience to what Jesus says. And I think in the profound words of Mark Twain, it isn't the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, but the parts that I do understand It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the outrageous things like loving our enemies, like turning the other cheek, like going the extra mile, like not storing up treasures on earth but storing up treasures in heaven. And these things aren't actually complicated, they're just costly. And they don't come through trying, they come through training. They don't come through trying, they come through training. And that's what this series is about. How do we reduce our focus? How do we be intentional with our lives? And how do we train ourselves to become more like Christ? I want to just read to you um, a little bit as we come into land from this book. It's a book, um, I think, I don't know if he's a Christian. It's not a Christian book, but it's a best-selling book by a guy called David Brooks. and It's called The Road Back to Character. And it's amazing, and it's like really challenged me. But at the beginning, he put some language around what I think we're trying to stumble on when we talk about being Christ-like. And so if you're comfortable, you don't have to. As I read this, I just want to invite you to close your eyes. Just try and let the words go kind of deep into your heart. Make that journey from your ears to your heart paint a picture for who are we becoming and how are we becoming, and we're going to invite the band up, maybe they can get ready as we do this, and then we're going to go into a time of response. So he says this, "'Occasionally, even today, "'you come across certain people "'who seem to possess an impressive inner cohesion. "'They are not leading fragmented, scattershot lives. "'They have achieved inner integration. "'They are calm, settled and rooted, They are not blown off course by storms. They don't crumble in adversity. Their minds are consistent and their hearts are dependable. Their virtues are not the blooming virtues you see in smart college students. They are the ripening virtues you you see in people who have lived a little and have learned from joy and pain. Sometimes you don't even notice these people because while they seem kind and cheerful, they are also reserved. They possess the self-effacing virtues of people who are inclined to be useful but don't need to prove anything to the world. Humility, restraint, reticence, temperance, respect, and soft self-discipline. They radiate a sort of moral joy. They answer softly when challenged harshly. They are silent when unfairly abused. They are dignified when others try to humiliate them, restrained when others try to provoke them but they get things done. They perform acts of sacrificial service with the same modest everyday spirit they would display if they were just getting the groceries. They are not thinking about what impressive work they are doing. They are not thinking about themselves at all. They just seem delighted by the flawed people around them. They just recognize what needs doing and they do it. They make you feel funnier and smarter when you speak with them. They move through different social classes, not even aware, it seems, that they are doing so. After you've known them for a little while, it occurs that you've never heard them boast. You've never seen them self-righteous or doggedly certain. They aren't dropping little hints of their own distinctiveness and accomplishments. They have not led lives of conflict-free tranquility, but have struggled toward maturity. They have gone some way towards solving life's essential problem, which is that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. They are people who have built strong inner character, who have achieved a certain depth. In these people, at the end of this struggle, the climb to success has surrendered to the struggle to deepen the soul. After a life of seeking balance, they achieve it. And these are the people we are looking for. And so the way that I'd love us to respond is that right at the end of Luke 14, and I'd never noticed this before, Jesus talks about the cost of following him. He talks about forsaking all others. And then there's this simple verse. You'll remember it well says this, in the same way those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. Salt is good but it loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown to the fire. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear let him hear. What he's talking about is The people that don't count the cost, who don't pursue him wholeheartedly, who are kind of in but a little bit out, trying to hold on to the world and hold on to Christ, those are the people that kind of lose their saltiness. They're they're not able to preserve life. They're not able to bring out the God colors in the world. But the people who set their eyes on Jesus, who aren't getting it right, they're not looking for perfection, but they're looking for progress. Those are the people that are like salt in the world. And so as we kick off this series and we go into a time of worship, I brought some of these salt sachets and um, I'm just going to leave them here. There's a prayer of Augustine and I pray it regularly and it's simply this. God, put salt on my lips that I might thirst for you. God, put salt on my lips that I might thirst for you. So as we go into this time of worship, don't do this casually, right? don't do it for me, don't do it at all if you don't want to, but if you feel like the Spirit's working in you, if you want to approach this year, this series, this time with a refining focus on Christ, I want to invite you to come up and grab a salt sachet, stick it in your wallet, if you're feeling brave, open it up, put a little bit on your lips. There's nothing spiritually profound about it, but there's something about moving our bodies that shows an intentionality to what God's doing. And so we're just going to leave them there. Just, yeah, encourage you, if you feel like the Lord would have you do this, just come and grab one, grab two, grab three. Put it in your wallet. Think about it. Think about the cost. Think about approaching this series with a new intentionality around how you live the lifestyle of Jesus that you might lay hold of the life of Jesus and I'm going to pray maybe you could jump to your feet while I pray Lord I thank you that you aren't looking for perfection Lord Jesus but you are looking to and fro for a heart that is fully yours and Lord Jesus we hear your words let he who has ears to hear let them hear god open our ears this morning that we might hear you lord jesus forgive us for ways in which we've let other things other than you fill our hearts our minds our diaries our time but lord jesus we pray for the courage and conviction to start this new year in a new way lord jesus to build the lifestyle of christ to follow you to move beyond believing into doing into being followers of you knowing that you promise us life and life to the full.